it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello and welcome to Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Torella. And I'm your better, prettier, younger host, Tori. We're sisters who are obsessed with true crime and love gal palin with you about cases. You can expect the occasional curse word, lots of friends quotes, and all the 90s nostalgia. To get in on the conversation, check us out at KillerQueensPodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at KillerQueensPodcast. And we're on YouTube at KillerQueens, a true crime podcast. Okay, y'all, grab your Capri Suns or your Surge and let's talk about some true crime. Hey, you guys. Hey, guys. We're finally doing Charlie Manson. I know. I don't know how to feel about it. What an idiot. I know. I mean, just like, I mean, he he was like actually very smart, but you know what I mean? No, I get it. The actions. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Scary. 100% scary. But I think that we, before we even, you know, talk about. Yeah. We need to just, we need to start her, start her on up. Let's talk about trigger warnings. Yeah. Okay. Essentially, the trigger warnings for this episode are yes. Mm-hmm. Yes and amen, right? Like, yep. yeah, we've got murder, brutality, torture, murder of a pregnant woman, sexual assault of adults and children, drug use, racism, and cults. And the list probably goes on and on. But... Yeah, there may be more. I mean, geez. I mean, this is a big one. It is, yes. And we also want to thank a few people for suggesting this case. Mm-hmm. We want to thank Aaron Marie, Carly Bodick, Jesse Ariel, Iris Lowe, Helen Milo, and Sarah Hoffert. Thank you. And a big hey girl thanks to Madison. Madison. Madison for um, writing this one up. Yes. Thank you so much. We also do just want to preface, like, there is so much information on this man and these murders and these cases, you know? I mean, this is something that, like, I feel like most people already have a generic knowledge of the case before, like, listening to this. So, and we're doing it in two parts, right? Right. But we could very easily break it into an entire season of... Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we are condensing it down to what we can fit into two parts. If you want more, I mean, there's like 1 billion documentaries on it. Um, there's the book Helter Skelter. There's a lot of other uh, information that you can dive into. So, you know, feel free. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to do a little overview, a little overview. Mm-hmm. On the morning of August 9th, 1969, a housekeeper arrived at her job to find a horrific scene. There were five dead bodies in the home of 10,050 Cielo Drive on Benedict Canyon in Beverly Hills. The victims were actress Sharon Tate and several of her friends, as well as a teenager who had been visiting the house's caretaker. Scrawled on the front door in blood was one word, pig. The following night, a wealthy couple was brutally massacred in their L.A. home. There were several more words written in blood on the walls of the couple's home, most notably the phrase on the refrigerator that read Helter Skelter. This made seven brutal murders in less than 48 hours, and it wasn't long before investigators connected the two attacks along with an earlier murder, tracing them all back to a cult-like group called The Family. The family was led by a single individual who exhibited control over all of them, and that man was Charles Manson. Investigators had a hard time believing that one man could have such an influence over others that they would murder for him. Yet, after meeting Manson, they learned that he was no ordinary person. That's an uh, understatement. I was going to (laughs) say. All right. So who was Charles Manson? Charles, is it Mills or Miles? I'm going to say Mills. Okay. Charles Mills Maddox was born on Monday, November 12, 1934 in Cincinnati, Ohio. C-I-N-C-I-N-N-A-T-A. Yep. Cincinnati. Babes in Toyland. Yep. Uh, His mother was a 16-year-old runaway, Kathleen Maddox, 
He was initially named No Name Maddox. Yikes. Creative. Yeah. Andrew's grandparents, when he was little, it was like all the cousins would go stay with him for like a week or two or whatever in the summer. And they were all there. And this like random cat showed up and they all wanted to keep it. And um, his grandfather did not want to keep this cat. And I understand that. And they won though. Everybody was like, we want to keep this cat. And so he was like, what are we going to name the cat? And he was like, (laughs) he had everybody write down a name on a piece of paper and they dropped it in a hat. And he was like, I'm just going to draw it at random. Well, his idea of a name for this cat was go home. That's what he wrote on the paper. He was just (laughs) like, go home and go home won. So the cat was named go home. (laughs) Well, there you go. There you have it. So that reminded me, um, hearing no name addicts. It's unknown exactly who his father was. However, in 1936, Kathleen filed a suit against a former sexual partner to determine the paternity of her son, who she had renamed, finally, an actual name, Charles Mills Maddox. Manson later referred to his mother as a prostitute. These are his words. We don't say that anymore. However, others claimed she was, quote, just a loose woman. Mind your business. Yeah, and also... I mean, what's wrong with being a loose book? Get out of here. I, I can't. I know, fuck off. Like, in the 30s, I understand it was a completely different time, whatever. But, like, what really drives me fucking crazy about when men call women loose or sluts or blah, blah, whatever it is, I'm like, did you benefit from it or not? Like, you took part in it, yes? Right. And, I mean, let's be honest. Charles, not really a beacon of moral authority. You know what I mean? Like, and also if we're throwing around the word loose, one could say that he was pretty fucking loose when he had the chance to be. So exactly. Like, yeah, it's position to throw stones. Charles makes me so mad. Yeah, me too. She was known to run away from home quite often. Um, Of course, she spent time with uh, different men and drank heavily. In 1934, Kathleen started dating an older man named William Eugene Manson. Three years later, they divorced, so this was kind of a whirlwind romance, but not before Kathleen gave her son Manson's last name. It's so weird to me because, of course, at that time, this William Eugene Manson, it's like Manson's not, probably just a common last name, it's not that big of a deal, but Manson, to me, means something so different, so I'm like, ooh. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And Charles Manson said later on numerous occasions he never met his father. In 1942, Kathleen was paroled from jail and quickly reclaimed Manson, who was now eight years old. They kind of jumped from motel to motel for the next four years. Kathleen continued in her same lifestyle. Uh, Manson watched as his mother continued to abuse alcohol. In 1947, Kathleen tried to put 12-year-old Manson into a foster home, but there was no placement available. Instead, the court sent him to a, quote, caretaking institution called the, is it Gibalt? I'm going to say, Gibalt, yeah. okay. School for Boys in Terre Haute, Indiana. According to the school, Manson didn't adjust well, you don't say, <laughs> and didn't have a very good attitude towards schooling. When he was in a good mood, he wasn't awful to be around, but most of the time he was pretty moody. And he ran away after 10 months and he went back to his mother. Not surprisingly... Kathleen didn't want her son back, so he ran away again. I mean, she's been trying to get rid of him. Mm-hmm. Beginning a life of crime, Manson committed his first burglary, stealing from a grocery store. Shortly after, he broke into several other stores but was caught. He was placed in a juvenile detention center in Indianapolis, but he ran away the next day. He, like, can get out of anything. Right. He's a Houdini. Yeah. Of sorts. He was then sent to Father Flanagan's Boys Town, where after four days of being there, Manson had another boy... Nope, he didn't have this boy steal the car. He has other people do stuff later, but not yet. Manson and another boy stole a car and committed two armed robberies, one at a grocery store and the other at a casino, and he was 13 years old. Mm. They met up with the other boy's uncle, who was happy to have them help him commit robberies. So they were eventually caught. Manson was sent to the Indiana School for Boys at Plainfield. Surprisingly, he remained at this facility for three years. He did, however, run away 18 18- times. <laughs> Old habits die hard, I guess. I don't so. This is when those around him first started documenting his increasingly manipulative personality. He didn't trust anyone. He seemed to only be interested in helping anyone who could benefit him, right? 
Right. In February of 1951, 16-year-old Manson, along with two others, escaped the facility with their destination in mind, California. California. Oh. Knows how to party. In the city. <laughs> in route, they stole multiple vehicles and robbed many gas stations. By stealing a vehicle and bringing it across state lines, they had broken a federal law. When the group was finally apprehended in Utah, Manson was sent to the National Training School for Boys in D.C. until he reached 18 years old. Is this kind of stuff a thing? Like, I've never heard of a National Training School for Boys. Like, I have no idea. I mean, this was in 51, so maybe those have gone by the way. Yeah, I'm just wondering, know, but... like, I mean, so he was, what, 16 then? He, yeah. I mean, he would have been tried as a fucking adult now. <laughs> 100%. But, I mean, the other schools did wonders for him. So I'm shocked that this one didn't help him at all. That's true. Right. Obviously, they're all doing something wrong. While at the school, Manson was given an IQ test where he scored a 109, which was an average score. Despite having attended some school throughout the years, Manson was still illiterate and just average in all areas of study. Kind of like Torella. Oh, okay. Well as evidenced by me reading today, yeah. <laughs> he really enjoyed music, though. His caseworker described him as, quote, aggressively antisocial. Yikes. Aggressively. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Through records later obtained by Manson's prosecuting attorney, these were statements written regarding Manson in his files. Quote, The boy tries to give the impression that he's trying hard to adjust, although he is actually not putting forth any effort in this respect. <laughs> Quote, Manson has become somewhat of an institution politician. He does just enough work to get by, restless and moody most of the time. The boy would rather spend his class time entertaining his friends. It appears that this boy is a very emotionally upset youth who is definitely in need of some psychiatric orientation. After a psychiatric evaluation that found Manson having significant signs of, quote, rejection, instability, and psychiatric trauma, I mean, and, like, again, the, we say this all the time, like, you can't give a pass to the adult that he becomes, but as a child, of course he was, he felt rejected, and rejection is going to be something that is cuts him very deep, like, he just well, never yeah. developed any coping mechanisms, but... He's having significant signs of rejection and instability. Well, no shit. I mean, he's been bounced around from boys' home to boys' home yeah. to boys' home. His dad obviously never wanted to be a part of his life or didn't know about him. I don't know. Right. And his mom clearly chose to not be a part of his life. Yeah. And then, you know, he had that stepdad, and it just seems like when their relationship was over, he was just like, all right, I'm done with you too. Right. Yeah. I mean... It is sad for the the child that he was. But after the psychiatric evaluation, they transferred him to Natural Bridge Honor Camp, which was a minimum security facility. Which is going to be great for somebody who... Ran away 18 times at the place before. Right. And he was there <laughs> for three years. Yeah. Shortly after turning 17, Manson's aunt offered a home and employment for him if they would release him. So his odds of being released at his next parole hearing were actually pretty good. And, you know, they've got this promise of like his aunt will take him in and give him a job and all this stuff. 
all that, great. Just just keep your head down and and keep going, right? No, he can't do that. A month before the hearing, he held a razor blade to another boy's neck and sodomized him. Okay. This got him another transfer. So now he's moved to the Federal Reformatory in Virginia. Within eight months, Manson had committed eight serious offenses, three involving sexual acts against other boys. Again, he was transferred to another reformatory in Ohio. I feel like they're just passing the buck. They're like, he's not our problem anymore. Here, you take him. Mm-hmm. What are we doing to... It's a reformatory. Doesn't that mean to re- help him right. to reform? And what kind of... I don't know. I mean, yeah, I don't know doing what kind isn't of... working. Yeah. What yeah. approach they took. And maybe, maybe if... I want to believe that everybody has the capability or the capacity to be reformed. Maybe if there is one person that can't be, it's Charles Manson. I know, right? Maybe, you know? Also, I think he's really lucky that, like, you know, during this time, he could have been sent to a, you know, quote, mental institution. hmm And they would have done some pretty horrific things to try to, quote, cure him. But, I mean, he definitely, he lucked out in a lot of areas because mm-hmm. he up until this point, hadn't had very much harsh punishment come in his way for anything that he did. It doesn't seem like, I'm not saying that this was like an amazing life for him, but he could nowadays have been tried as an adult at 16 Uh and spent the next, well, forever in prison. Now I'm, I'm saying that he didn't have, I wish that that, knowing what we know now, I wish it had happened. Well, surprisingly enough, this seemed to do the trick for him. <laughs> I, I don't know why, um, but he was a changed man. He stayed out of any serious trouble. Uh, he worked on learning to read and write, and he was even given a merit award. And so on May 8th, 1954, Manson, who was by this time 19, was granted parole. And that's the end of the, that's the, end of the episode. That's the end of the case. The end. He didn't do anything else ever again bad. Nope. No. Changed man he was. Right. Um, okay. So that was a straight up lie. Um, <laughs> let's, uh, let's talk about a little bit after he was released. So he met a 17-year-old girl named Rosalie Jean Willis, and the two married in 1955, but Charles was clearly not a changed man. What? I know. I know. It's crazy, and you didn't see it coming, and nobody expected it, but... He didn't. So what he did was he proceeded to steal multiple vehicles again, brought them across state lines again. I mean, dude, you're over 18 now. Like I know. Shit's about to change for you. Yeah. So he pled guilty and asked for psychiatric help, and he was evaluated by a psychiatrist who said, quote, it is evident that he has an unstable personality. In my opinion, this boy is a poor risk for probation. And so they were like, so let's give him probation. Exactly. So we got probation. Great. (laughs) On the second charge for the other vehicle he brought across state lines, Manson skipped town before his hearing and a warrant was issued for his arrest. He was sentenced to three years in prison in San Pedro, California. And when he was headed back to prison, Rosalie ended up giving birth to his son, who is Charles Manson Jr., It wasn't long before Rosalie's visit started to slow down and she moved in with her mother in April of 1957. (laughs) Sorry. What? It just finished the sentence because that's what I'm laughing Uh at. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. He attempted to escape, but he didn't make it very far. They found him in the parking lot. Yeah, that's that's the first place they're going to check. (laughs) Well, yeah, exactly. Um, So that ended up earning him another five years in prison, and Rosalie filed for divorce, which was finalized in 1958. She remarried, and she maintained uh, custody of Charles Manson Jr. So Charlie, Charles, can I call him Charlie? Sure. I don't don't give a shit. All right, I'm just wondering. Um, He was released on parole on September 30th, 1958, and by this time he was 23 years old. He remained under surveillance by the FBI, and after spending several months as a pimp... Which now we would say sex trafficker. 100%. He was arrested again for stealing checks from a mailbox and attempting to cash them. 
Those are two federal offenses, though. So he loves federal offenses. And people are like, Charles, what's your hobbies? He's like, federal offenses. Yeah, I like to just really go hard on my offenses. Mm-hmm. Federal all the way. Yep, bring them up to federal. So during his court appearance for sentencing, a young woman named Leona came to Charlie's defense saying that they were in love and that they would marry if he was free. What? Okay, I'm sorry. What does getting married do? It makes like, you a changed person, clearly, as know, evidenced like, by... What do they think is going to happen, especially in this time frame? It's not like they're like, well, a woman will whip him into shape. Like, <laughs> that's not kind of how marriage was at that time. So I just don't... They're like, okay, fine. I mean, if you're going to get married, then yeah, sure, get out. That's fine. Right. Because you were married before when you stole a bunch of other shit, but this time will be... I think that that was like the, the common opinion of everybody with Charles Manson. They were like, this time is going to do it. This one's mm-hmm. going to stick. Yeah. And it never does. So the judge placed him on probation and he shockingly mm-hmm. returned to his same lifestyle. After leaving prison, he married Leona. And as Charlie continued to go in and out of court and prison for charges, including grand theft auto use of stolen credit cards, and transporting a girl across state lines for the purpose of sex for money. He was also accused of drugging, raping, and defrauding two women, and he was eventually located and indicted for taking the woman across state lines for the purpose of sex for money, and he was ultimately taken back to prison. While he was in prison, he joined the drama club and the self the self-improvement club. That didn't work for him. <laughs> that was a poor use of his time. Exactly. Um, Whoops. Didn't take. Um, mm-hmm. He played softball, basketball, and croquet. Well, fancy schmertzly. So does the queen. <laughs> exactly. You mean the queen on Alice in Wonderland? Exactly. Yes. Okay. That's yes. The only queen the only... I'm familiar with. Yes. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. I was like. I don't know any other queen, so I'm assuming it's the queen. The um, what was her? What would you call her? The queen of hearts? She was the queen of hearts, I think. Yeah. yeah. Oh no, no, I've got that song in my head. Don't. Okay. I also have a Vince Gill song stuck in my head, but I won't do that to you either. Thank you. In October of 1963, prison officials were informed that Leona, after being granted a divorce from Manson, did end up giving birth to his second son, Charles Luther Manson. He already has one named Charles Manson. This one's name is Charles Luther. You can't name both of your damn kids the same fucking name. I don't. But do you know who we're talking about, though? I know. He thinks he's God. Yeah. So everybody should be Charles. He's like, I got an idea. What if we name him Charles Manson? I'm like, well, don't you already have one? He's like, that. no, it's fine. People won't get him confused. This one's not Junior. This one's just Charles Manson, though. Exactly. That's true. There is no Junior. That is a difference. All right. Maybe he's right. Maybe he's right. Exactly. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. On March 21st, 1967, Manson was released from prison, and just before his release, he had begged to be allowed to stay in prison. He said that prison had become his home, and he didn't think that he could adjust to the outside world. (laughs) And they were like, um, no. GTFO. Yeah. Yeah. Get out of here. We don't want to deal with you. So he was denied that request, and they provided him transport to San Francisco. So at 32 years old, Charles Manson had spent more than half of his life in institutions. Okay, you guys, now let's talk about the family. 23-year-old Mary Brunner was a librarian who'd moved from Wisconsin for a job at the University of California Berkeley Library. She met Manson in 1967 and allowed him to come live in her apartment with her. Okay. Like, I don't judge people that get sucked into cults because I would too. I'm positive of it. I just feel like I would. I'd be like, I believe you. Sure. (laughs) But like... He just looks creepy. He does, especially if he's using, I mean, what we lovingly refer to as Manson lamps. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I know. Just like he looks creepy. So I just, I can't imagine like meeting him and being like, sure, come live with me. Like, I don't know. But as we know, almost all, as far as I can tell, the cult leaders that we have, that I've watched things on, read about what we talked about, charismatic as fuck. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Okay, so he moves in with her. Not long after this, she quits her job, and then they took to the road in a Volkswagen bus. The next woman to join their group was Lynette Frome, which everybody knows as Squeaky. She was 19 at the time, but like Mary, she was completely enamored by Manson and his charm and his beliefs. Manson Lamp Van right there. Right. During his travels through California, he found several more girls to join him, Mary and Squeaky. Also, isn't that a little telling? Like, he's just collecting women? Yeah. I don't know. Isn't that kind of weird? Like, it's incredibly weird. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. And I'm glad that you asked. Yes. Yeah, Yeah, it's all weird. Okay. So this included Patricia. Oh. Oh, goodness. Patricia. Patricia Krenwinkel. (laughs) Yep. It's it's, it's a lot of R's in those. Well, there's, there's in fact, just two, but still. Um, yes. Leslie Van Houten and Susan Atkins. The events in the next several months are a little vague, but Manson started what he later began to refer to as the family. There were several young men who also joined Manson. His personality— See, it's not weird. There were a couple guys there. That's true. That's true. That's true. Totally not weird. It's not weird anymore. Mm-mm. Thank goodness it's not weird. But, like— You know, he has a type, and all cult leaders do, right? He is looking for, he figured out that if he could get teens, young adults, people who had difficult home lives, who had issues with their parents, who felt unloved, who felt alone, who felt rejected like he did. Yeah, the people who are, like, lost and looking for something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's always that way. It's Mm -hmm. every single cult, there's an element of that, like— Because you have to be what this person needs. You have to be able to fill that vulnerability. Well, yeah. And as a cult leader, if you choose to go into that line of profession or that, you know. That line of work. Line of work, line of career, line of profession, line of whatever. um, If you choose to do that, you have to be like, what do you need? Mm-hmm. I can do that for you. Yeah. And, that, and, and you know, they you get go. in these conversations with people. Tell me about how you grew up. And t- you know, they... They can identify somebody that's going to work for them, right? 100%. If you've got somebody that's not the type of person to go with the flow and who's going to ask questions, who's going to look at you and be like, 
I actually, I don't think that's true. I don't think that's right. Like, that's not going to work. He was totally charming and persuasive. He had the perfect personality and demeanor to gain control over people who were lost and looking for something. In April of 1968, he had his first child from one of the family members. Remember, he already has two Charles Manson's (laughs) children. And this time, they're going to go a little bit more... They went a little different on this name. Yeah. Uh, Mary Brunner gave birth to a boy, Valentine Pooh Bear Manson. Hmm. It's rumored that uh, he cut the umbilical cord with his own teeth. That's disgusting. Do you know how thick that thing is? No, and I honestly don't know if I can even the discuss it. The scissors they give the dad, I mean, typically is who cuts it or whatever, you know, like in my situation, that's what happened. The scissors they give you to cut that umbilical cord are like surgical grade, could cut through a fucking cast. Like, oh my God, that's disgusting. I well, hope you didn't do that, but I feel like you really did. Because Yeah, I've seen it just on TV, you know, so of course it's real, but... Yeah. I've got pictures of the boys being born, so I'll send you what they're Oh, no, no. Oh, no, let's not. That's not necessary, but I do appreciate the offer because I will pass out my own vomit and vomit my own pass out um, 100%. But, uh, and I don't think. No. (laughs) No, it's okay. (laughs) Um, It's, I, again, I'm very grateful for the offer. Do appreciate it. I just know me and my own body, and I know that anything that is not disgusting, I find to be disgusting and. I don't even know if disgusting is the right word. My body completely goes rogue on me, and then I'm like, I wake up 20 minutes later. Yeah, we can't even talk about snot around her. Oh, don't. Please don't. I I'm can't. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I won't talk about lots of it. But the in the things that I've seen on TV about doing this, it looks like, I'm like, did they give them kindergarten scissors? Like, why is this so difficult to cut through? <laughs> because it's fucking huge. Because yeah. it's difficult to cut through, yeah. yes. Around the same time, Dennis Wilson, who was the drummer for the Beach Boys, which I do not know that. Wouldn't it be nice if you could meet Charles and have him ruin your whole damn life? Wow, you should be a songwriter. I know! You came up with that on the fucking spot, is what you did. Dude, I am so talented, it's sickening. It really is. I just threw up a little bit. (laughs) Um, But Dennis Wilson, the drummer for the Beach Boys, picked up two women hitchhiking in Malibu. He was newly single and was taking advantage of his newfound freedom. And the two girls that he'd picked up, oh man, is of course Patricia Krenwinkle <laughs> and Ella Jo Bailey. He asked the girls if they wanted to stay at his home in Pacific Palisades. No, I don't want to play with you in Pacific Playland. That's what that <laughs> sounds like to me. The girls, of course, happily agreed as Wilson had a large home and plentiful access to drugs. Because as we know, like Uncle Billy tells us on Love Actually, Love Actually, don't buy drugs, kids. Become a pop star and they give you them for free. (laughs) But of course, unbeknownst to Wilson, the two girls were part of the family. And they immediately tell Charles Manson about this. They're like, dude, this guy, bunches of money, bunches of drugs. Let's do this, you know? And also he's the drummer for... Yes, he, he is also the drummer for the Beach Boys, which is a big damn deal. Right. Um, good for you, dude. So one day, Wilson comes home to find Manson and the rest of the family at his home with the bus they've been living in parked outside. Oh my God, this is jammy before jammy. Yes. Like, he just squatted the fuck out of Wilson's home with a bunch of people. Yeah. And he's like, can you check the mail? I'm, I'm expecting something soon. Yeah, uh, I've already changed my address to this. I mean, uh, and jammy is... Uh, we covered, oh, worst roommate ever. So the yeah. last two episodes are this guy named Jamison that they call Jamie. It's a whole thing anyway. <laughs> um, but we covered that on our Patreon. So Wilson was obviously scared and he asked Manson if he was planning to hurt him because he's just like, I have absolutely no idea who these people are. And apparently Manson walked toward him and said, do I look like I'm going to? He then dropped to the ground and kissed Wilson's feet. That wouldn't make me feel better no. You know, if like I show up and there's like 50 people just like living on my yard now and I'm just like, ah, I've met you before. Didn't think I was going to see you again, to be honest. And you've just now kissed my feet and I don't, <laughs> I'm not, I do, that's, I need personal space. Yeah. Honestly. <laughs> but they became friends. Um, Like most of his relationships, Manson simply saw Wilson for what he could do for him. So 
Wilson was part of the music industry, and Manson fancied himself quite the songwriter and guitar player. Could he come up with a song like I just did on the fly? I don't know about that. I don't know, but he did write a shit ton of songs while he was in jail for 30 years. So Yes, he did. He kept Wilson satisfied with the girls in the family who did whatever Manson told them. Disgusting. Hating that. The two hosted parties where Manson would play his guitar and preach his beliefs. The people that came would use LSD, and there was, like, lots and lots of sex. Like, I think this is very much like, was it Wild Wild Country that we covered? Yes. Where it was just, like, orgies everywhere and— Bushes flying. Bushes flying. And this is 1968. Oh, there was a lot of bushes. Yeah. A lot of bushes. You need a landscaper for all these bushes. <laughs> I think if it was made into a very tasteful adult film, I think it'd be called Bushes Galore. <laughs> Bushes Galore. <laughs> um, I think so. I think so. Yes. Uh, because that does sound tasteful. I think so. It does. Uh, Wilson, who was reportedly trying to find his own spirituality, became enamored with Manson and his beliefs. Again, you know, and like, and that's why I say <laughs> becoming part of a cult, like everybody thinks like I'm not the I'm not quote stupid enough to fall for something like that. But again, it's no respecter of persons, just like addiction, just like so many other things. Like you when you have this like I'm looking for something, which so many people do. Like this you, existential longing, yeah, maybe. Yeah, like if or, you yeah. fall into the hands of somebody who's looking for exactly that. It's just awful what people will do to vulnerability. Like, it's just not, it's not cool, if I'm being honest. Yeah, I mean, well, Torella, that's a little harsh, but you're right. It's not cool. He's being a real butt munch, and I I, I didn't want to have to use that kind of language today. I know but. you don't. I know you don't. Yeah. We're going to have to put an explicit rating on this because that's, that's true. That's hard stuff to listen to. But, I mean, look at just any type of relationship, whether it be friendship, a significant other, whatever— you don't go into it looking for somebody who's going to fuck you over or right. <laughs> exploit your vulnerabilities, but it happens. Mm-hmm. It yeah. can happen. So in any other phase of life, it can happen. Exactly. Yeah. One person who was at Wilson's house quite a bit was Greg Jacobson. He was a talent scout. He met Manson in 1968, and he introduced him to Terry Melcher, who was at that time a well-known record producer. So Manson set his Manson lamps right on Melcher in hopes of getting himself a record deal because he was in a fucking amazing songwriter. Just ask him. <laughs> For a while, Melcher was entertained by Manson and his family, and reportedly Manson even had an audition at a music studio, and Melcher was considering making a documentary about the family. Man, good thing he didn't do that. I know. He would have come under some damn fire for that. <laughs> Melcher came out to the Spawn Ranch to listen to Manson and some of his girls perform, but he was not impressed. And he kind of called it, like, background music. Like, he's like, that's fine for the background. Yeah. It's not drawing me in, you know? Uninterested in being involved with the family and obviously weirded out by Manson and his philosophies, Melcher cut ties with them. Later, Melcher confirmed that one evening Wilson had given him a ride home and Manson had tagged along, sitting in the back seat— of course, he played guitar and sang the whole time. <laughs> like, dude, cut it out. Like, take a fucking break. Yeah, cars have radios. Let's let them sing it. Yeah, come on. So the house was a beautiful French Normandy-style home halfway up Benedict Canyon in Beverly Hills. Melcher was renting the home at the time with his girlfriend, actress Candace Bergen. Oh, I love Candace Bergen. I did not know that Candace Bergen had anything to do with this case before now. I didn't either. And to be quite honest with you, and this is going to sound so terrible, but I mean it in the silliest way possible, I guess. I didn't know Candace Bergen was ever young. I know. Like, it was very, very crazy to see a picture of a young Candace Bergen because I only know her past a certain age. So, Well, and this is, yeah, you just don't think about, golly, I'm going to sound like a, a Gen Z, but is she still she's still alive? Right? She's still alive. Okay. Yeah. Because I mean, she was old enough to be living with her boyfriend and already an actress in the 60s, 70s, you know? Mm-hmm. That's a long fucking time ago now. Stop. It hurts me. Yeah, I yeah. know. And she described that home as a place that she felt very safe. And um, I will now read a quote. 
At Terry's house on Cielo Drive, I felt at home, surrounded by tall, thick pine trees and cherry blossoms with rose-covered rail fences and a cool mountain pool grown over with flowers. It snuggled up against a hillside, a gingerbread hideout that hung high above the city. Did she write, like, a book about it? (laughs) (laughs) And now I will read an excerpt from my book called Cielo Drive. Yeah, like, wow. There were stone fireplaces... Beamed ceilings, paned windows, a hayloft, an attic, and four poster beds. There was a cartoon-like perfection about it. You waited to find Bambi drinking from the pool, Thumper dozing in the flowers, to hear the dwarfs whistling home at the end of the day. (laughs) Did she just fucking come up with this shit on her? Like, they were like, what'd you think of the house? Like, (laughs) come on. It was a fairy tale place, that house on the hill, a never-never land far from the real world where nothing could go wrong. I know. She That's missed her calling. Her I mean, she's a great it, yeah. actress, but... I didn't know she could write something so beautiful about just a house. Like, if, if somebody was like, tell us about your house, I'd be like, well, there's fucking shit everywhere. <laughs> First off, yeah, I I'm keep like, accidentally covering up Nicks in the Wall with the wrong fucking color paint, so there's different color paint everywhere. <laughs> See, I would say about my house, I'm like, I, I like it. It's fine. Yeah. It's fine. I have a bed. It's fine. There's food. <laughs> yeah, I don't... I don't can't have park this. A, my car in the garage to save my life because there's too much shit in there too. But anyway, it's fine. That's what I would say. Yeah, but you're no Candace Bergen. Clearly. That's true. Yeah, obviously. I mean, beautiful words. I just was not expecting that kind of description <laughs> of it. It's just like, wow. just very impressed. I'm writing to be impressed. <laughs> After having Manson and his followers living at his house for about six months, Wilson was understandably growing very tired of the family, and they wrecked his home. So he ended up moving out, and he just left the owner of the home to deal with evicting the family. <laughs> I mean, like, but if your the, problem now, if the laws are kind of the way they were, I mean, again, because we learned a lot in Worst Roommate Ever, like maybe they had to go through the eviction thing. Yeah, I mean, Wilson seemed a little. Uh, irresponsible, but. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So the family was now newly homeless, but they did not plan on returning to living on the school bus. The uh, Manson was interested in a 55-acre ranch that was just outside of Los Angeles known as the Spawn Ranch. Prior to the 60s, Spawn Ranch had been used as a movie set, and it was used in quite a few well-known Western movies throughout the late 1940s and early 1950s. And in 1953, the ranch was sold to a man by the name of George Spawn, which is where we get Spawn Ranch, right? What is that movie called? I know you've seen this movie. It has Brad Pitt in it. Why can't I remember the other person? But it's basically the Manson murders. (laughs) Is it Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? It's... And yes. He, dr- he drives out to the ranch. And and hangs out with the girls. Yes. Yes. It was yeah. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. Yes. It was a good movie. I really liked it. It, it really was. I liked it too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so this is when the name of the set changed to Spawn Ranch. And unfortunately, Western movies had become less popular. So George was forced to use the ranch for other things to raise money. And it was a great tourist spot, a perfect place for horseback riding. But at this point... George is 80 years old, and he ran the horse rentals from his home on the ranch and continued working as a dairy farmer. That's hard work, man. I would imagine, and he's 80. Yeah, I don't know if my 36-year-old body could manage it, let alone an 80-year-old. My God. Not at all, no. I am in no shape to do that kind of hard manual labor, Mm -hmm. mostly because I am an entitled, lazy piece of shit, but... Well... It's impressive. Yeah. So the more that Manson saw the ranch, the more he was sure that that was the next home for his family. And this, the family consists now of 13 women and five men. I'm no mathematician, but I think that's 18 people. So Charles proposed his idea to George. He was like, okay, we can move the family onto the ranch. We can live there in exchange for helping with the labor. And George, who couldn't work as much as he used to because he's getting older, you know, mm-hmm. he and he was also going blind. Yeah. So he was excited to have the group on the ranch to help with the work. And he was also happy to have access to Manson's female followers. Okay. So just, uh, okay. So you, yeah. I love when you do that. You're like, okay. And then it's like, okay. Um, I just, okay. I, yeah. I cannot run my head. Okay. So 
you're like, hey, he, um, he, I have like a bunch of people that live with me right now. We like have nowhere to live. We did like the bus thing for a while, across this other guy's house, totally wrecked it. We've been evicted though. So understandably so, right? I want to live here. We all just want to live here first off. Like <laughs> we live Can here we now. Can we do that? Can yeah. you just go to someone's house and be like, I would like to live here now. Yeah, I do live here now. Now, um, we'll help you because you know, there's stuff, work you got to get done. You're old as fuck. But also, if you want to, and now you just let me know, but I've got a bunch of women here, and you can just do what you want with them. What kind of conversation is that? And what kind of person is like, okay, that's great. I definitely want to have access to all these young women. Right? Access to... No, that's disgusting. Uh-huh. Gross. Yeah. You think... Because, you know, at first I'm like, poor George. And he's got to do... And then I'm like, oh, okay. Well, he's Fuck kind George. of a creep yeah. anyway. Yeah, it's, it's pretty gross. But... Squeaky from she was given the job of keeping George happy and under the impression that the family was just a happy-go-lucky group of young adults who were just there to help. And spoiler alert, they weren't. Right. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. In 1968, the family moved onto the ranch and Manson's followers continued to expand. And life in the family was good to the followers. Initially, followers described the group as being all about love, sex, and drugs. And Later, Susan Atkins, who was one of the women involved in the Tate murders, she described what it was like to meet Manson and how it was to live in the family. And she said that before she met him, she felt like she was, quote, lacking something. And this is now a direct quote from her. I gave myself to him, and in return for that, he gave me back to myself. He gave me the faith in myself to be able to know that I am a woman. What does that even mean? I don't know! Because I feel like when you say something like to know that I am a woman and knowing what he did to these women, you know, essentially sex trafficked them. Not a, he sex trafficked them. Yeah. Like, because I don't know. You know how sometimes people use the term like show him he's a man, meaning like have sex with him or whatever, or make him feel like a man or blah, 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 whatever. Like, I feel like that's what she's saying here. I don't know. I feel like it just has to do with sex and I don't like it. Yeah. Because he's oh. brainwashed her to believe that him sex trafficking her is him loving her and providing for her. Right. Just awful. It is awful. And she went on to say that she was in love with the, quote, reflection of Manson and that there was no limit to what she'd do for him. She also said that Manson was the only, quote, complete man that she'd ever met. And her reasoning being that Manson wouldn't take any backtalk from a woman or let a woman talk him into anything. What does that... I know. Okay. What does it even mean? I I just can't, like... He's the only, quote, complete man because he doesn't allow backtalk from women. First of all, in the 50s, I don't think it's hard to find men who didn't accept, quote, backtalk from women. Yeah. But, okay. If that's different to you, then sure. Yeah. I don't know. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to keep going because I have no words. I I don't know. I don't like it, yeah. So he even gave the women new names, telling them that in order for them to be completely free, they needed to forget about their past. This is like um, Michelle Elizabeth Shamblin's sinless Mm -hmm. name, becoming Elizabeth. And that's another one that we've covered on our Doc Jams, so. That's true. Yes. Talking a lot about the Doc Jams today. I know. She said that he represented a Jesus Christ-like person to her. Okay. Just okay. Yep. Susan said that they were able to provide for themselves on the ranch. The family would panhandle and the women would go on garbage runs where they would get food out of dumpsters behind supermarkets. That's not that. Okay. 
Okay. I'm sorry. I just... <laughs> yeah. That's not providing for your family. <laughs> well, yeah. scavenging, I guess. I mean, like, if that's what you absolutely have to do, but, like, they could just work, but they just don't want to. Right. They yeah, just want I mean, to steal definitely. from other people. It's yeah, awful. I mean, well, and she said that they would steal a lot of stuff. They yeah. stole money, credit cards, and she ended up saying that Manson never asked them to do that. And she said, quote, no, I took it upon myself. We get programmed to do things by Charlie, but it's hard for me to explain. The words that would come from Charlie's mouth would not come from inside him. They would come from what I call the infinite. This is your brain on drugs. I know. I'm like, it's kind of like I'll have what she's having, but I want the exact opposite. I want nothing to do with she's with what she's having. I don't. Yeah. I don't understand it. Yeah. I don't know. I don't. I don't know. And it's awful because, I mean, that's another tool that he used, right? To he knew, control them. Yeah, yeah. He knew that keeping them on drugs, and making them believe that he's providing for them and, you know, all this stuff. It's just awful. Mm -hmm. The programming that Atkins referred to was essentially Manson taking advantage of the weaknesses of the people he met, then asserting his power over them or inserting his power over them, if you know what I mean. Um, But the lead prosecutor in the cases against the family, Vincent Bugliosi, later wrote that what he was told by a former male family member about how Manson gained control over individuals. And he said, quote, he had various techniques. With a girl, it would usually start with sex. Charlie might convince a plain girl that she was beautiful. Or if she had a father... Mm -hmm. If she had a father fixation, he would have her imagine that he was her father. And he did this with Susan Atkins. The first time they had sex, he told her to imagine that he was her father. But why do you want to imagine that? I don't like, know. Are we talking about father fixation, like, like quote, daddy issues? Like, I have issues with my dad? Or, like, father fixation, like, I'm attracted to dad? Like, what? I don't know. What does know. that mean? I don't like that. I don't that. even like this conversation. No, I don't like it. It's gross. <sighs> or if she was looking for a leader, he might imply that he was Christ. Okay. Manson had a talent for sensing and capitalizing on a person's hangups or desires. When a man first joined the group, Charlie would usually take him on an LSD trip, basically to, quote, open his mind. And then while he was highly in a highly suggestible state, he would talk about love, how to surrender yourself to it, how only by ceasing to exist as an individual ego could you become one with all things. I mean, he knew what he was doing. Yeah, 100%. And he, I mean, that's what we were talking about. Like, he knew, it's scary how much he knew just by hanging out with somebody for a little bit to be like, okay, Mm -hmm. this is exactly what's going to work for this person. Yes, yeah. And imagine, like, if you've taken that, being that intuitive and done anything good with it. Anything. Right. Jeez. I know. Manson knew that he needed other men within the family and felt that having many women there to serve them was the key to attracting them to the family. Oh, sure. Right. All of this could be yours. Look Mm -hmm. at all of the women. So Greg Jacobson, a friend of Dennis Wilson, told investigators during interviews how little Manson seemed to value women. He said that Manson believed that they were only as good as their men, that they were a reflection of all the men that whoever had been, uh, whoever had been close to. And why there were so... It's just weird because there were so many women in the family compared to men. It was almost like a five-to-one ratio. And he said, quote, it was only through the women that Charlie could attract the men. Men represented power and strength, but he needed the women to lure the men into the family. And he would specifically send younger male family members out to recruit more females. Manson was too old for most of the young women that he targeted. So... While he preached love and togetherness, there was a clear hierarchy with within the family. Like mentioned before, the women were strictly there to serve the needs of the men, including cooking, cleaning, and sex. Despite the men being viewed as above the women, no one was above Manson. And followers said that during dinner, family members would sit in circle on the ground eating, and Charlie would sit on a rock above them, and no one else was ever allowed to sit on his rock. It's a rock. <laughs> Yeah, but it's higher. It's, it's his higher. Throne. Than, yes. 
I mean, I've seen Game of Thrones and that throne is pretty cool, but um, he would also arrange orgies in which he organized everything. So before the orgy, he would hand out drugs and these were typically hallucinogens and he would decide exactly how much of a drug each person needed, but he would never take as many drugs as he gave the family members Mm because he always wanted to be in control. He would instruct every person on what to do. Nobody did anything without a say-so. And he would he would go as far as to, like, arrange bodies, positions, who was with who. And he just danced around naked. Gosh. He would also force people to do certain sexual acts that they may have indicated that they didn't want to do, like, or didn't feel comfortable doing. Mm-hmm. So partners of the same sex, certain sexual acts. And he said that they had to completely rid themselves of their inhibitions. So not only did these orgies include the young adult family members, but often those who were still children, like some of these people that in- participated in the orgies were only 13 years old. <sighs> During the night, the family often executed what they called, quote, creepy crawls. And this is when they would wear dark clothes. They would go into people's homes in the city at night. And while the people who owned the home or lived there were sleeping, they would move quietly around the home and they would move things around to different places so things looked different when the residents woke up. And these creepy crawls were obviously very creepy foreshadowing for what they would do in the future. In November of 1968, the Beatles released the White Album. Wildly popular, it was only a matter of time before Manson listened to it. He was extremely drawn to the lyrics from their songs and felt like the Beatles were speaking directly to him through the lyrics. And again, this is your brain on drugs. Mm-hmm. He described their songs as a prophecy, indicating that the world was headed for a revolution. Greg, who had met Manson before the White Album was released, said that Manson talked about an imminent black-white war. He thought that the world was headed for a race war and that his family would be at the front of it. Cool story, bro. Like, what? I feel like this this kind of reminds me of, um, in a weird way, how your husband will never go see a horror movie because he thinks that whatever happens in a horror movie is therefore going to happen to him. And I'm like, hey, you're so vain. You think that this horror movie is about you. Like, (laughs) maybe the ghosts have more to do in their lives, okay, than just be like, I bet Andrew's going to get the shit scared out of him tonight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, the Beatles were like, I need to talk to Charles Manson. The only, <laughs> the way, only do way to do so, yes. <laughs> is to release an album that millions of people buy. <laughs> like, yeah. Charlie, it's not about you, okay? No. So when the White Album came out, Manson's thoughts on an imminent race war were confirmed to him. I mean, uh, you know. I don't know another way to take it, honestly. Well, that's true. He felt particularly spoken to through a song on the album titled Helter Skelter. Manson referred to the, quote, black-white revolution as Helter Skelter. When asked what Manson believed Helter Skelter entailed, Greg said this, quote, It would begin with the black man going into white people's homes and ripping off the white people, physically destroying them until there was open revolution in the streets until they finally won and took over. Then the black man would assume white man's karma. He would then be the establishment. It just sounds so stupid. See, here's the problem. Um, Is there a problem? Oh, okay. Um, Maybe I'm the problem. I don't know. I feel like, because, I mean, whatever, you know, if you don't have a problem, I don't have a problem. Everything's fine. When I hear quotes from anybody in the family about what has happened, and I say anybody in the family, but quotes like what we've just discussed, Mm -hmm. I'm like, do I need to be on drugs to understand this? Like, I, I know, that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah, like, what? It's, it's so stupid. I but you know, they were all like, oh, yeah. And he said, you dig all the time, you know? It's like, yeah, so uh, we would do this, you dig. And then he did that, you dig. And then you dig. Like, <laughs> oh my God. So they were probably like, cool, I totally dig. I said that recently, you dig. And I can't pull it off. No, you certainly can't. I mean, <laughs> I didn't hear you use it in a sentence other than just now, and it's, it didn't work. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for validating my feelings about yeah, not being able exactly. to pull that off yet. You were right. <laughs> Another follower said that Manson believed that once the black man took over, the family would then take control and become the, quote, master race. Bugliosi wrote, quote, in his sick, twisted, disordered mind, Charles Man... Char- oh, gosh. Charles. 
Charles Manson believed that he would be the ultimate beneficiary of the Black-White War and the murders that triggered it. See, again, I'm I'm sorry, but not Charles. Not following, not following, yeah. Yeah, I'm not following it at all, but why do you think mm-hmm. that everything is about All of this is a you. yeah, exactly. Before the idea of Helter Skelter became Manson's sole belief, he had preached being self-sufficient and that the family was complete within themselves. However, now, in the early months of 1969, Manson had become materialistic. He wanted to gather guns, money, and cars. He attempted to have the female family members work at a topless bar, but unfortunately for them, (laughs) this is what they said, um, or unfortunately for him, that most of the women in the uh, family were flat-chested, so that just wasn't going to work. I feel seen and simultaneously attacked because I am also a member of the Itty Bitty Titty Committee, so... I mean, boobies is boobies, ain't they? I've thought so. I don't know. I mean... So, you you know, he walked around, and he was like, I want you guys to go work here, and then he was like, never mind, you're all got little boobs. <laughs> Maybe he should have hung out... I don't know... What? Let's pick ever. a different a different way to raise money than maybe mm-hmm. or something. I don't but that's I mean that so very clearly shows how he saw the women in the family. Well, and that's the thing because they you know, it's so sad because they believed that all of this was him loving them and taking care of them and it makes me really really sad. It's just awful. Yeah. And these are I mean, you have to remember because I need to remind myself as well. These were young very young girls that mm-hmm. yeah so exactly another follower said almost sadly quote before helter skelter came along all charlie cared about was orgies but things had changed manson believed that murders needed to be committed to incite helter skelter and they would be happening very soon so and this is not a dig at anybody who has or is a former member or whatever, because we've already talked about like joining a cult or be being um, won over or whatever by somebody who is dubious and wants to prey on your vulnerabilities, right? Like it can happen to anybody. But mm-hmm. I would hope that if that happened to me and I was all about whatever we were doing, right? Let's my pretend cult that I'm a, uh, a part of all of a sudden. If the cult leader was like, all right, guys, Get ready, because we're going to go murder some people. I'd be like that SpongeBob meme where it's like, I, I'm out. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a head out. Yeah. Not for me, man. Like, I don't know. You dig? Not I, for I me. Know. Yeah. Yeah. But pass on this? I don't know. Yeah. That actually, that, ooh, gosh, that's, this is awkward because I'm actually not going to do that. Yeah. This is, um, this is, uh, against some of my belief. Now, if we're talking like, if we want to go pet kittens, I'm down for it. Let's go. Sure. But it's not, yeah, I'm not into I'm not into the murder so much. Right. That's a problem for me. Yeah. I think that's bad. I think that's bad. Yeah, I just ugh. this case is so insane. It really is. It really is. Um, but that's the end of part one, guys. Yeah. We're gonna get to the actual helter skeltery things. Yeah. Next time. But if you want to write this very second, all of those heltery skeltery things, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you're a patron, you want it, you got it. Go get it. I'll buy it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, it's over there. So yeah, go right over there. Yeah. But yeah, otherwise, you know, next week. Yeah, we'll catch you next week. No worries. But thank you guys so much for listening. We absolutely adore you. And um, I hope you're having a great day. We love you. Bye. Bye. Okay, you guys, you know what time it is. It's shout out time, it's shout out time, it's shout out time. Or butcher your name time. Yay. Right? My favorite time of day. Okay, so we're going to start off with, luckily, we have a Hey Girl thanks to somebody who preempted the butchering and corrected us. Hey Girl thanks to Kaya Salzman. Nina Tanner. Kelsey Johnson. Jenna DeHaven. Michelle Marciano. Sarah Dryman. Aaron Johnson Rigglesworth. Oh, that's fun. I know, I know. I love that. Danielle Miller. Carly Justice. Jackie Rodriguez. 
Kaliki Katayamaki. Okay, sorry. Zumi. Karen Moreno. Lauren M. Sydney Hasfall. Cameron Potts. Jessica Quaz. Michelle Burlingame. Jason. Barbara Jordan. Crystal Nicole. Heather Robinson. And Pam West. Woo! Thank you guys so much. We love you. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening, and we will meet you back here next week. Bye. The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. Our logo was created by Sloan Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Visit us at KillerQueensPodcast.com for merch and other info about the show. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.